welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of 18th, 19th, and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are taking a break from our Mansfield Park read-long, and we are talking about a literary family that I don't think we have covered on the show yet. Lauren, that's right. We haven't, have Correct. we? Correct. We have not. And we I have talked about them behind the we scenes have quite about a bit. Them. Yes this this whole year a lot this whole year but now we're finally like recording now we're talking to you about it (laughs) Uh, lauren where did you find this well where did you find the first author that led us to the second author yeah the whole literary family here um yeah i actually stumbled across Edith Eaton, or Sui Senfar, via the Library of America website. So for those of you that don't know, um, Library of America is a nonprofit, and they also publish these sort of beautiful, hardbound editions of classic American work. And they sort of fall somewhere between, like, scholarly and then for, like, a general audience. Okay. So, um... It's like a really good place to actually mine for material for the show. <laughs> yeah, it's like actually. accessible. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. accessible, but they get a lot of like academics in to do these really nice introductions and like features that sort of accompany the work. So they featured Edith Maud Eaton and her short story, Mrs. Spring Fragrance, on their site to promote their book, Becoming Americans, Four Centuries of American Immigrant Writing, which sounds really good. Um, I will link to that feature on our socials because not only does it include a bit about Edith Eaton, but it also includes a full PDF of the short story. So actually, if we're, you know, for the sake of transparency, neither Laura nor I have read Edith Maud Eaton's work. So no, we haven't if read you want to read the short story when we share it in the Facebook group, maybe we can, you know, it's not a read long. It's just a short story. Just mm-hmm. some initial thoughts, maybe. I'd like to read it and then have a chat about it, especially as I've spent six months thinking about these authors. Her. Yeah. Yeah. Her and her sister. <laughs> yeah. So um, in a nutshell, we are talking about two writers today. We're talking about the Eaton sisters and even that is ambiguous because there were lots of Eaton children but we're talking about Edith and Winifred Eaton and I apologize if I get them confused at any point or say the wrong name because I know I do in the interview so um yeah they are two sisters who end up becoming writers and between them they actually write for newspapers magazines novels cinema like they really earn their writing chops they just if it's a writing job, they'll do it. Um, Edith's first job was working as a typesetter. So it wasn't like, it wasn't writing. Oh, cool. It was like the physical, mm-hmm. the physical act of printing, you know, for a mm-hmm. newspaper. So that was her in. Uh, so Edith Maud Eaton was born on the 15th of March in 1865 in Macclesfield in England. And her father was a British merchant and her mum was Chinese and she had been trafficked by like a world touring circus artist. So she herself was like a tightrope walker and was like in a knife throwing act. And then at some point in London, she's rescued by, I think by missionaries who like free Mm. her because she was being treated badly. And then her parents meet in Shanghai. Yeah. 
random. Yeah. As you say, like, didn't they meet back in Shanghai? Crazy life story. Yeah. And then and you, it doesn't like it doesn't really stop there because as a family, they do move around a lot as well. So I think a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about later on in the interview, um, like bear in mind the fact that the year Edith was born, the family, the whole family moved to America. Um, I think it was New York State, not New York City. Um, and then they moved back to the UK three years later. And then in 1872, they do move overseas again, but then to Montreal in Canada instead. And three years later, Winifred is born. Okay. The sister. So there's 10 years between the two sisters, 1865, 1875. The family is pretty settled then in Canada. So when we're talking about their works and their responses to stuff, again, it's worth considering the fact that one sister for the first 10 years of her life lived in the UK, America, the UK and Canada. Um, So I do want to talk very briefly about the fact that this is all happening at the same time that the Chinese Exclusion Act comes into play, which is a complete ban of Chinese immigrant workers entering America. So that came in in 1882. So Edith would have been, um, I think, about 17 years old. Winifred would have been seven. They were living uh, in Montreal, which isn't super far away from the border, is it? No, it's not terribly far. Not well, I guess in those those standards, in, it's pretty far. I guess maybe in they were living in some place in days. Canada, and Canada is on the same continent as America. It is. It is geography. Um. So this is yeah. So this is happening in in the backdrop. Uh. So you've got like baby girl Winifred, but then young professional working half Chinese Edith, like she's entering mm-hmm. the working world, and this is. This is uh, people are being talked about. Chinese people are being talked about in the idea of this exclusion act. And we don't want these people here. We don't want them. Keep them out. Um, Mm. The act was meant to be temporary for uh, just a teeny tiny 10 years. But it's made permanent in 1902. And it actually wasn't lifted until 1943, Lauren. Oh, my God. And when it was lifted, I think it was like 100 people a year could enter America after that. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. So this isn't like this obscure historical reference. It's, you know, it's a thing that affects like modern politics and like communities today and and families. Mm -hmm. Um, I did want to just kind of give people some literary things to think back on, because I think when it's if it's like I'm not Chinese, I don't live in 1865. Mm -hmm. I'm not American. So it's like it's all nice and obscure right it's it's hard mm. for me to picture what that would have been like so then you use like books and plays and tv and film and like that will help so i just it made me think of um north and south so that's something that we've read on the show and just the reaction to the irish workers so that's something yeah. to you know like you've you've got the response to the people who are local who are saying like we've got no jobs we're not getting paid these people are coming in and they're taking that and they're not seeing like the larger picture. It's just, they see Mm -hmm. like the new people. So that's what was happening. I think it's after the American civil war. Is that right? Yeah. With those dates. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So obviously the national economy is in turmoil. And so you've Mm -hmm. got this cheap labor coming in and people are like, this is the problem. It's because of this labor. Um, And then in 1875, a little known book that no one will have heard of called the aunt Hill or eight cousins. Oh, yeah. Was published. Um, So again, just kind of keeping your mind like fun C and the way uh, Alcott is 
treating um like the Chinese and yeah. like that's a positive example and I think a lot of us had some issues when we were reading it and mm-hmm. so you can only imagine the sort of language that was used to describe people in a non-positive light you know right, like Funsi right. is different because Funsi is like a wealthy merchant who comes to America and ends up marrying a white woman and being very successful like he isn't the person that the newspapers are writing about you know right. like illiterate like dirty like you can only imagine the things that people were reading about and that's something that Edith responds to a lot like in in her work it was um mm-hmm. because because she passed as white people would say awful stuff about the Chinese in front of her not knowing like her background mm-hmm. so yeah so it's all really interesting oh also I watched a lot of Deadwood in my early 20s and there's a <laughs> lot to do with Chinese immigrant workers in that show and it was Good really tip. upsetting and awful. So if you want some upsetting and awful stuff to watch, there you go. <laughs> Deadwood is your show. Deadwood is your show. Not just about this, about all topics. <laughs> well, the passing thing um, with Edith is really what I actually sort of gravitated towards when I first heard about her. Because, I mean, I am a light-skinned Black woman, but I, there are a lot of times people assume that I am Puerto Rican or, you know, whatever. I've gotten everything. I've gotten Lebanese. Yeah. Gotten Italian. Or biracial. All kinds of things. Because you couldn't possibly (laughs) be, you know. It's weird how biracial is like one of the last ones. Really? (laughs) But yeah, it's really weird. So um, yeah, so I, you know, reading about Edith and her work, especially her journalism, um, that actually is what really attracted me to sort of like learning a little bit more about her and I ended up going to Twitter to learn more about her because <laughs> it's hard. There's not a ton out there, as you can imagine. No, there so isn't. I just kind of tagged a bunch of our academic friends that we've made over the years. And I was like, hey, guys, who is doing research or work on, you know, the Eaton sisters? And Karen Skenazi's name came up more than once. Everyone was like, you got to talk to Dr. Skenazi. So Dr. Karen E.H., Skenazi is Canadian by birth and a New Yorker in her heart and a Brahmi by residence. And she is the director of liberal arts at the University of Bristol. Yeah. Bristol. Hometown. <laughs> and um, she has a wide range of interests and takes an interdisciplinary approach to 19th through 21st century women's writing. Karen has recently published the book Women of Valor, Orthodox Jewish Troll Fighters, Crime Writers, and Rock Stars in Contemporary Literature and Culture, which you should definitely buy. She also published a critical edition of Winifred Eaton's 1916 fictionalized biography of her sister, Sarah, entitled Marion, The Story of an Artist's Model. Karen's essays have appeared in academic journals as well as popular venues such as The Conversation, The Forward, and Tablet Magazine. Karen did her BA in Toronto, her MA and PhD in New York, and has taught at universities in the US, Canada, and the United Kingdom, which is great because that's like all the, the exactly. whole area that yeah, yeah, they yeah. have traveled There's as so well. much crossover. <laughs> yeah. Um, finally, as may become clear, Although she is an overall Eaton Sisters enthusiast, she's uh, clearly on Team Winnie here. Yeah. I think I'm Team Winnie too, but I don't know that there's teams. No, of course not. Who would do teams? (laughs) (laughs) All right. 
Hi, um, my name is Karen Skenazy. I work at the University of Bristol and I'm the Director of Liberal Arts here. And you are a resident expert on the, we're going to say the Eaton sisters because initially it was going to be Edith Eaton and then when we kind of got in contact with you it was like why Edith? Why not Winifred? Why not anyone else in the family? <laughs> so why the Eatons? Why the Eatons? So I have been a fan of the Eatons for um, probably 20 years, which is a really long time since <laughs> most people have never heard of them. Um, but when I was in graduate school, I took a class with my then PhD supervisor, Cyrus Patel, and it was on emergent American literature. So it was all these new versions of American literature. And for Asian American literature, we read this story by Edith Eaton. Um, it was an autobiographical story, and uh, it was called Leaves from the Mental Portfolio of a Eurasian. And if there's one piece that somebody has read by either of these sisters, it's usually this one. Um, so at the time, both of them were known, but Edith was the good sister. Winifred was kind of the bad sister or the fake sister. Okay. She didn't fight for her own heritage. Um, so, of course, I was really interested in the bad sister because I liked that label. And, um, and, and Leaves from the Mental Portfolio of Iteration is a, it's a good story, I think, in part because it's like this little woman fighting for racial justice, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, at a time when people were not defending the Chinese in America. So it makes for also in our time to look back and say, oh, look, you know, all these bad things were going on for the Chinese in America at that time. There was the Chinese head tax in Canada, which is where Edith was from. Um, there is the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act going on in the U.S. And here's this woman who's actually defending the Chinese. So she seems like a good hero figure. Yeah, when initially, I think that's why Lauren and I were drawn to Edith Eaton, right? Because you had this woman who's like an activist, mm -hmm. she's doing this like investigative research, yeah. and almost feels like she's living this double life because she's writing about the Chinese experience, but then is able to kind of pass through like in white society, right? That's right. So her mother was Chinese, her father was white and British, um, and all the Eaton siblings could pass as the term is, um, could pass as white, right? So especially people didn't really know, right? And when they grew up in Montreal, there weren't really other Chinese people there. Mm -hmm. So people didn't have a strong sense of what it means to be Chinese, to look Chinese. Um, so they they had a very easy time passing as white. Um, but, but Winnie, as we like to call her, <laughs> Winifred Eaton, Edith's sister, was very compelling to me because she didn't seem to be doing these good things. She was banking on the Orientalism of the time, right? Banking on this like um, fascination with the exotic East and writing romances about Japan. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting and bizarre and made up this Japanese name yeah, to go with her identity. Onoko Wanatabi. Anato Watana. An Right, so wait, we're going to do that bit again because I don't want anyone to know <laughs> made up a made up Japanese sounding name. And so what name did she write under? <laughs> she wrote under Anata Watana. 
great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, what? So they were both writing. They're yeah. sisters. Yeah. They had other siblings. How many other siblings did they have? They had a lot. Um, now I can't remember. I want to say something like fourteen living ones were no. total. Maybe 16 born, 14 living, around that okay. many, many children. Were any of the others writing, or was it? Um, so a lot of them were creative in different ways. And also, art was part of their home growing up. Their father was an artist of some kind. Um, their mother had grown up in the circus. Okay. And, um, and they were also people who, so the father obviously came from a high class society in Britain. and. Um, his life circumstances had changed, but he still wanted to pass on this good education to his daughters. Um, but they were poor and they lived yeah. sort of outside, they were living in Montreal, but they were sort of outside both English society and French society. They didn't really fit into either one or they lived more among the French, but saw themselves, align themselves more with the English. Um, but they have a very complicated, they have complicated lives, their mother, is seen as very strange and foreign because she's Chinese. Um, they're not English or French particularly, and um, and there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. um, but they go on, so Edith is first becomes a writer. Winifred is 10 years younger than her, so she becomes a, a writer quite a bit later, and they have very different styles of writing, different genres that they write in. Um, they also have a sister called Grace, mm -hmm. and Grace, marries a writer, so she marries a guy called Walter Blackburn Hart, and he's also the assistant editor at New England Magazine um, and various other magazines. And this is significant because he publishes Edith Eaton's first piece as Sui Sin Far. Um, so she's already been writing for Canadian newspapers at this time, but in a non-raced kind of mm -hmm. way, right, just as a sort of observer of Canadian life. And then she writes her first piece about the Chinese called The Gamblers and publishes it as Sui Sin Far. Um, and Walter Blackburn Hart publishes it. He dies not that long later. Grace goes on to become a lawyer. And I can't swear, I've been trying to figure this out for some time, but she might have been the first Asian American woman lawyer. I just haven't found really? any evidence of any other ones. So. That's Grace. They have another sister, Sarah. Sarah and Winifred collaborate. So, okay, so there's like a closer relationship. There's a very close yeah. relationship between Sarah and Winifred, and Marion, the story of an artist model, mm -hmm. um, is published as one of the memoirs that Winifred writes. So she writes a memoir called Me, Me, a book of remembrance, um, which is about her life with various things transposed and anonymous. And then just a year later, she writes Marion, the story of an artist model, which is the story of her sister, Sarah. Okay. And yeah. it's kind of a spin-off, right? Because we have a lot of the seeds planted in me, and then Marion is maybe even a more sort of scandalous story. And her sister wants to be an artist, so another aspiring artist, but she's a woman, and it's the late, tw late 19th century, and she's not all white, and she comes to the U.S., and she's not American, and so... She does not get to become an artist. She gets yeah. to be an artist's model, which was a far more typical occupation of women at that time. Um, so really, like, a lot of creativity in the family. Okay, and do you, um, 
Was there anything particularly because they were they were all educated at home, weren't they? So the parents, do you think, were yeah, I think like encouraging I, this. That's right. They, they gave them a lot of really good books to read. Yeah. They put on plays. They went to plays, right? So this was a, a creative family. And in fact, I should add to tie in with your stuff. Winifred's granddaughter, Diana Birchall, is also a writer. Okay. Also worked in Hollywood for a really long time. And then writes Jane Austen stories. Really? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Time. You have to look up Diana Virtual. I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, okay, yeah. that's really good. She's very big in the whole Jane Austen society. Great. Yeah. <laughs> now, you mentioned before as well, um, obviously, Sue Sanfar, I butchered poor Winifred's pseudonym. <laughs> uh, why, why did the sisters choose pseudonyms? So, um, first of all, Winifred had a number of different names that she used. Okay, yeah. But um, Edith Eaton, I think, takes on this name as a way of being a defender of the Chinese and, um, and wanted to have a name to suit it. So, of course, Edith Maud Eaton, very white-sounding name. Yeah. She passes as white in society. So it's a big move. It's a big shift, I think. And she writes these very non-raced stories. Um, and I think there's a moment where she decides, actually, I could be doing something more important. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, and this is all about identity politics, right? You must be the thing that you are defending somehow. Somehow that's really important. So she becomes Sui Sinfar. And it's very much a writer name, right? I don't yeah. think anybody is calling her, hey, Sui, how you doing? Right? Um, it's Cantonese for Narcissus flower as well. Yeah, the, uh, and, and actually it comes up in her writing, right? There will be sort of in-text stories where there are people with this various versions of this name showing up. Um, so she obviously liked the name and mm -hmm. thought it was a good name. And, and when they put up a big, if you go to Montreal, um, they put up a big memorial for her. She spent most of her life in Montreal. She's actually born here in England, mm -hmm. um, but lived most of her life in Montreal, and they put up a big memorial to her, and it has her name in English and in Chinese written on it, and it was donated by her Chinese friends, as it says on, on the memorial. Um, so when Winifred starts writing, I think she was like, okay, my sister already did the Chinese thing, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not going there. Beyond which, it's not great to be Chinese at this time, as I say, right? You know, people don't want the Chinese. There's all these fights going on, including between Canada and the U.S., which is where these sisters move back and forth across, um, about the that crossing, right? That crossing, yeah. which is a really dangerous crossing. Um, there's a whole underground railroad going on. And um, America's accusing Canada of being like the back door for Chinese immigrants yeah. that they don't want. Um, so not great to be Chinese. Edith takes this as her mission because she's like yeah. a good person. And Winifred doesn't. So it almost comes down to being like political versus a commercial. Oh, and Winifred was all yeah. about the commercial. Like brilliant, brilliant marketing. So... Winifred is like, oh, well, those dumb white people don't know the difference anyway. <laughs> Whatever, Chinese, Japanese, what do they know? 
And being Japanese at this time has a totally different valence. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you ever look at some of the articles written about the Japanese-Russian war that's going on in the early 20th century, just the way the Japanese are written about as these noble, noble is the big word, right? These noble race of warriors, right? Clearly, you'd rather be Japanese. But it's more than that, actually, because... Japan has just opened up in the 19th century to the West, and by the late 19th century, you have this craze of all things Japanese, Mm -hmm. right? So you have art, architecture, um, furniture, and then you have these white European and American men who are writing stories. So if you've ever read or seen uh, Madame Butterfly, right? Um, Madame Chrysanthem was another one, so John Luther Long, Lefcadio Hearn, Pierre Loti, right? All these men are writing stories that involve these, like, delicate, beautiful Japanese women and these big, strong, white European men. Um, and then they often, like, abandon the Japanese women at the end of it. It's very tragic. Um, so this is sort of the figure of the Japanese woman in America at this time. She's this tragic, noble, romantic, romantic delicate. It's not close to home, is it? Because if it's you've not got all of the problems home. with um, the refugee problem with China, then it's like you're writing about that, and that's like a very set thing. Whereas right. if Japan is still very much like romantic, colorful, exotic, yeah. right? But the the brilliance, I think, is. It seems like she's like, okay, so there are all these white men telling the story of the Japanese woman. What if the Japanese woman were to tell her own story? Now, of course, she's not a Japanese woman. She never goes to Japan, but it doesn't matter, right? It still seems like a really good counter-narrative, the kind of thing we would love today, too, right? Um, So she both traffics in that exoticism, but also kind of counters it, right? Because... Her stories tend to be, the women tend to have a lot more strength and character, mm-hmm. right? They're not just fragile little flowers waiting to be broken. So it is it is a mix, I would say. Yeah, I think definitely like in terms of culture and identity, Winifred, they're both really interesting, but Winifred is so interesting. So interesting. In that sense. I mean, and she keeps reinventing herself. Every time she decides, okay, I'm bored of this genre, I'm going to try something new, she reinvents herself to go along with it, right? So she does the Japanese novels, like novel after novel after novel. Like every year she's writing another novel. And I should say, just as part of her genius, because I love this, her very first novel, Miss Nume of Japan, was published in 1899. Now, she's been writing stories for some time at this point. Um, but the cover of it is a fan, yeah. right? And it's this colorful fan with um, Japanese characters, like people, on a rickshaw drawn into it. It's a very Japanese looking. And the writing of Miss Nume, sort of the, the letters sort of look as though they're Japanese. And you open it up, and inside is a picture of the author in a fan, right? So, like, matching the outside in the frontispiece, there's Anata Watana, who, of course, in her daily life is, like, 
a white woman living in suburban Long Island, right? Mm -hmm. and, and doing her garden. But in this picture, just because she's framed in a fan the same way that the front cover is, she becomes Japanese, right? Yeah, it's she, like she's she, putting on a character. She puts on, it's a character. It's a character. So she does the Japanese character for a while, gets bored of it, decides, you know what? I had an Irish grandmother. I, I can write as an Irish woman. And she writes this story of Delia, the Irish maid, right? And does and wants to actually publish it as Winifred Mooney. Really? So really? She's doing it again. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they were like, well, you've sort of already made a name for yourself as an Anatawatana. So I think that name never really goes through. Then she does the memoirs anonymously and a cookbook with her sister Sarah, yeah, right? One of, one of her collaborations with her sister Sarah. Um, so they do the, the Chinese-Japanese cookbook. Which is hilarious if you ever see it. It is a, it is all about, and again, they just make stuff up, right? Because they're like, nobody knows anything yeah, about it. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? There's no, there are no Chinese cookbooks to compare to at this time. Um, so she writes her anonymous memoirs, a little more Japanese stuff bleeding through, long gap for various reasons in her life. And she loses a child, she has bad marriages, like, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the background. Um, ends up moving to Western Canada, to Alberta, and living on a ranch and deciding, okay, I'm done with the Japanese stuff. It still comes back one more time, but I'm done with the <laughs> Japanese stuff. Um, I am henceforth a Canadian. Okay. I'm reclaiming my Canadian. And she actually has someone like a friend of hers publish an article saying she is henceforth Canadian, reclaiming her Canadian identity. And she also says she's losing her delicate pen, which of course she had to use for her Japanese writing, and she's going to write these brutal ranching novels. Great. Great. So she <laughs> and, and they're gritty and they have rape and they have, you know, all kinds of awful things. Although they still have a bit of her light writing, sort of, she can't help her style. Um, but she writes these ranching stories, stories, novels, screenplays, plays, um, then she gets bored of that mm -hmm. and gets bored of ranching, <laughs> right? So leaves her husband behind and goes to Hollywood, becomes a screenwriter, right? Works on a lot of, and this here's where she goes a little bit back to the, they sort of peg her as the East-West person. So she does some of that work. Um, and then comes back to Alberta, and, and that, I mean, that's pretty much her life, but really sort of reinvent, and when she publishes actually her Alberta novels, she uses her married name, Winifred Reeve, or Winifred okay. Eaton Reeve. So not, she's abandoned another yeah, one. Yeah, so she's really put point. it down. She's done. Tell me more about Hollywood. What were, how, like, how did that come about? Who were her contacts? Did she, was it a good experience for her? Um, so I don't know if it was a good or a bad experience. It wasn't that long lived mm. um and also even with her own pieces she was always trying to shop them to hollywood and for plays right she really wanted multiple productions and she was a little bit successful she did have uh one of her books go on to broadway she that also was had a japanese nightingale yeah it was a japanese nightingale which was her biggest bestseller and it was translated and yeah but it didn't last that screen. long um, okay. yeah it wasn't terribly it wasn't successful the way her novels were she also had some like bad things going on on broadway so she had a big fight with david belasco who was 
you know, not somebody you want to have a big fight with on Broadway at this time. So it was, um, she accused him of stealing part of her story for one of his plays, and then he sued her for libel. And so some bad things going on. Um, in Hollywood, she made some important contacts. So she was buddies with um, Anita Luz, who was one of the biggest women screenwriters at the time. And um, Frances Marion, who was another one of the big screenwriters at the time. So she had some good contacts. She did some interesting work, but I think there was also a, a fair bit of pigeonholing that was going on in her Hollywood time. I think they really wanted her doing some of that East-West stuff that they felt like this is the expert. That's what they wanted her for. That's what That's they wanted what they her for. And it's hard to, well, yeah. it's hard to break out of that, isn't it? Once it's hard to break out of it. That box. And um, so obviously with success comes notoriety. Mm. And you sent me a picture of her at dinner with Hemingway. No, not oh, Hemingway. What is going on <laughs> with my memory? Who was it? She it was, was at Mark Twain's Mark birthday Twain. dinner. They're, yes. both, they're both American. They are, they are both, both American. American. Okay, wait, we're going to do that take just in case. Lauren's <laughs> probably going to include the bit where I said the wrong thing. Cause, <laughs> aren't you, Lauren? Yeah. Um, so you sent me that picture of her at dinner with Mark Twain. Yes, so she was invited to Mark Twain's birthday dinner in birthday. part because she was best friends with his grandniece. His grandniece was a writer who was well known on her own accord. Um, her name was Jean Webster. And her the book that's still in print of hers today is called Daddy Long Legs. Um, so she had, you know, she she lived in fairly high society circle. She also knew Edith Wharton. So, you know, she knew people. Um, and but, but Jean Webster was one of her best, best friends. And in fact, when she wrote the anonymous memoir, Me, and Me, I'll tell you a bit about more about me, but I'll just say nobody knew who published it. Mm -hmm. um, and so she had Jean write the introduction for it. So of course everybody assumed that Jean had written the novel, or sorry, right, the okay. memoir, the novelized memoir, we'll say. So the memoir was anonymous. The memoir was anonymous and the publishers had a field day with this. So you literally had billboards, like signs up on subways, who is the author of me? Like who shot Phil Mitchell? Oh my gosh. Like insane. who shot JR? Oh yeah, right. <laughs> EastEnders versus you know presidential assassination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um yes, so they had who is the author of me and they made it into this huge mystery mm -hmm. and all the different newspapers and magazines were trying to piece together, you know, clues in the book. The New York Times solves it. Um, how, how do they solve it? Well they solve it hilariously by saying that um, she gives away her Japanese heritage, right? So okay. it's, it's hilarious because <laughs> she is. doesn't say China, Japan, anything like that in the book, right? But they're like, oh, notice the way she kisses the hand of someone or mm -hmm. the way she's deferent. They're like, clearly she must be Jap this Japanese noblewoman, Anata Watana, who was born in Nagasaki. You know, we've got it. We figured it all out. Um, so it's very funny, but yes, they made a big, big mystery. And in fact, when Marion came out a year later, the mystery of me had already been solved, but they continue banking on this, calling it, you know, 
Marion by the author of me rather than actually naming her. Um, and then in all their ads for Marion, again, sort of saying, me caused quite a sensation when everybody was trying to figure it out. Marion will do the same, even though actually our, most people already knew at that time. But yes, they had a lot, I mean, great marketing all the time. And did she, was she going around kind of saying to people, like, slyly, like, or is she like <laughs> lip sealed, like sitting there like, oh, I'd love to know who that is, but kind of chuckling on the inside. I mean, I'm sure her friends knew. Okay. Um, but again, she lived this sort of weird life where she was like a suburban white woman, you know, hanging out with her husband and kids in Long Island while this Japanese noblewoman was writing these mm-hmm. delicate books. So... There was a big divide between her her literary presence and her daily life a lot of the time. Did she... I mean, Elizabeth Gaskell springs to mind, right? So when she's at home, she's writing in the dining room, she's managing the household. Her husband's got his own study, but she's kind of got this table in the corner of the room that the family uses. So when Winifred's at home writing, is it is she given the space to do that or is she oh i think the table fills the whole house (laughs) (laughs) this is if i can say one thing that like comes down across the ages is this is a woman with a presence yeah and every husband she had and every child knew that like her persona and profession had a very big role in her life Mm -hmm. um probably much more so than family and other mundane things like that. So no, this was no no wallflower kind of writer. Um, and this is why she's okay to leave her husband and leave her children behind and go here and there because this is this is what she you know, this is her goal and she's good at it. Amazing. Amazing. This we don't you don't get a lot of authors who that you get to hear about where that is kind of happening, right? That they are just, like, they're owning it and everyone's kind of falling in line behind them. Like, maybe people are sympathetic to it. Or yeah, I mean, I didn't know that her family was so appreciative of this. No, Don't get but me it wrong. it was happening, right? It was but it was happening. happening, yeah. Okay, so all of the, the me mystery was happening while she was, like, at home with the family. kind of. Yeah, she's time. at home and, and there's, and I said there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of actually sad stuff that goes on in her life. So she has an abusive husband and she has an alcoholic son and, you know, there's a lot of not mm-hmm. nice, she has a son who dies. Um, there's a lot of not nice stuff that goes on in her life. Um, and then, and then when she marries Frank Reeves, who's the guy in Alberta, um, this is a long-lasting marriage, but she goes off to Hollywood after just a couple of years and leaves him, and then they almost divorce. But don't. But don't. They reconcile in the end. But um, so there's a lot of, like, family trauma that goes on, too. Um, but I just feel like she is one of those larger-than-life characters. Whereas Edith, we can come back to... Yeah, I mean, Edith. <laughs> I don't think Edith comes down in history to me that way Mm -hmm. and I think part of the reason I'm prejudiced a little bit in that sense is that Edith shows up as a character in the autobiographical writings of Winifred who makes her out to be very prim, very proper, a little snooty, 
big on class issues, um, not very fun, mm-hmm. and and sickly. Okay. She's sickly her whole life. And she has a much shorter life. And I think that's another difference between the sisters, to be fair. I do think Edith is the more objectively better writer. Right? Her writing is um, more nuanced, more sophisticated. Um, but she just has a much shorter run of it. And she has, there are lots of things. And Mary Chapman, who published Becoming Sui Sin Far and still has many, many more works of hers to publish, um, has found tons of stuff. So she's written a lot of things. But the thing about Edith Eaton is that her works are very short, whereas um, Winifred is publishing novels, novels, screenplays, plays, right? Full length pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, Edith is, is publishing short stories, journalism. She also copies herself, like, a fair bit. So if she's publishing for a newspaper in Seattle, Washington, and then she's publishing for the Montreal... Um, what was it called? I don't think it was the Gazette then. What, whatever the Montreal paper is at that time. They are across the continent from each other. So she can just write... Here's what Chinatown is like in this fill-in-the-blank city. Write the identical piece, send it to both places, make money off both of them, mm-hmm. and there's no internet. Yeah, so who's, like, fact-checking that? Who's, yeah. who's checking to see which Chinatown is this really, right? I feel like that is so interesting about both sisters. It's really banking on the ignorance of the oh, white yeah. people that they're selling their work to. I mean, the irony of Edith Eaton is one of the reasons people have traditionally, scholars have traditionally liked her, is that she is a woman of Chinese heritage mm-hmm. writing in defense of the Chinese. Um, but until... Um, until sort in the first few years, that's the story, and, and she seems like the good, authentic sister. Mm-hmm. But at some point, people start realizing... It's not like she knew anything about her Chinese heritage, right? Everything that she knows, she really is learning along the way. Yeah. Right? So in the same way that Winifred is learning about Japanese stories, and they're as real as you want to call them, um, Edith is learning about China. Yeah. Right? So it's not like she grows up speaking Cantonese or Mandarin or, or, you know, really immersed in the culture. It's not like there's a big Chinese community in Montreal that she's part of. This is really, as an adult, something that she takes on. Mm-hmm. So it's really not so much more authentic. It just happens to fit with her heritage. Yeah, like my grandmother is uh, South African. She's Afrikaan. She was born over there, but moved to England. My mum is uh, was born in England on the yeah. Isle of Wight, and so we grew up playing like Afrikaans Monopoly. Okay, <laughs> well there you go. I'm not going to start writing under like some high, like some old High Dutch slash German name, passing exactly. myself offers. Yeah, but you still have a connection to it, right? So she's still, still a connection. It's like in a when so few people are getting published who aren't white, who are like women of color, especially. Right. It's kind of like at least there's some aspect of a different culture coming in yeah i guess which is interesting especially for the time and great that she can make a career out of it like both of them both of them i mean i think i suspect winifred made a lot more money out of it um in part because edith was working a lot of jobs to support herself 
Um, and because she wasn't publishing the big pieces, right, apart from Mrs. Spring Fragrance, um, which is her full-length collection. Now, there's sort of a story of another manuscript that she wrote that no one's ever found. I cannot speak to it because I have never found <laughs> it. <laughs> but there are hints in letters with her editor that there's something else that she wrote, that she finished, and then she dies. Right. Right. So one conspiracy theory has it that Winifred, who, you know, is totally, like, cutthroat, steals it, and then it's one of the things that she's published. Is that if you had to pick one? <laughs> but I don't buy the story. All right, but if you, if you did if buy it, I had, If I one? really had to pick it. I mean, oh, that's hard. That's hard because I don't think they sound like her. I will say other people think that it could be me or Marion. I mean, one of the things that happens in me, and the timing would fit that, um, is that she goes to Jamaica. Both Edith and Winifred went to Jamaica to go work there. And so there's like these, you know, it starts in... Quebec generally, yeah. goes to Jamaica, goes to the US, all of these things happen to fit nicely with both their lives. Is it possible that Edith wrote it and then Winifred manipulated it, maybe? I do you know what? That's so good because obviously we've got <laughs> we've got the story of like who wrote this book. Who wrote who, and that's really on the billboard. Who wrote it? You tell me. I, 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 I believe Winifred. I am a believer. I believe in Winifred. Okay. Go, Winnie. Well, you know what? I'm going to go team Edith on this All right, one. You Just, go team Edith. I like, I like that story. Right, it's a good story. Okay, Lauren, this is the second half of the recording on my iPhone because the card in the other microphone ran out and uh, Karen's going to tell us some more about uh, and some anecdotes. And yeah. Anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was just to say, the thing that I think lured me into the world of the Eatons, and I love stories of women who, you know, they're um, shy or whatever, quiet, meek, and then all of a sudden they find their inner power. And I think that um, the story that Edith Eaton tells in the mental portfolio piece, which is the most anthologized of all her pieces um and of course it's written in retrospect and you know she might have made herself more heroic than she was but she tells the story of how she's working and of course she's red as white at this time she's working as a stenographer in a town somewhere that has a railroad passing through she doesn't say what town it is and a train comes through with chinese people on it and her employer looks at this train and says Somehow or other, I cannot reconcile myself to the thought that the Chinese are human like ourselves. They may have immortal souls, but their faces seem to be so utterly devoid of expressions that I could not but feel doubt. And then the second colleague chimes in and says that they're more repulsive than the N-word. Um, and then little Edith Eaton, who's been working there as this quiet stenographer, gets up her courage and says to them, the Chinese people may have no souls, no expression on their faces, be altogether beyond the pale of civilization. But whatever they are, I want you to understand that I am, I am a Chinese. And I love 
that story because yeah. I think it's it's you know it's it's her moment of again it could be partially fabricated but she tells it as this moment of um, consciousness waking mm-hmm. right suddenly she realizes actually if I'm not going to stand up for the Chinese who will yeah. And it was like, in that moment, she, didn't, she doesn't have to say anything either. She does you know? not have to say anything. Yeah. Right? And then they apologize to her, actually. And they're like, oh, I don't know what we were thinking. And yeah, you're totally right. So I think it's also a moment where she suggests that just saying that, just sort of giving people understanding that actually you might be talking to someone yeah. who's Chinese and, and they're a person like you, will totally change their perspective. And also how much as well... I think that's still an attitude towards like Asian young people or people in the workforce. Yeah, I was listening sure. to something about um, college applications and how there's this like, oh, you they might take a little warming up or whatever because like uh, white Americans will perceive people to like not emote as clearly okay. or like there's like a coldness there. So it's okay. like there's this thing going on with identity that hasn't shifted right right like people are still seeing that wall and so that's always really interesting when you've got these authors working through issues or like discussing issues and then comparing that to especially with race like what's still happening today and still being reported so if someone had to go and read something by either or both Eaton sisters like tomorrow what are they going to go what are they going to rush out and get? I mean, clearly I favor Marion, which is why mm-hmm. I published an edition of it. Um, and I think I really like it for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, it's a story of a woman who everyone says she can't and she will anyway mm-hmm. in some ways, right? So she wants to be an artist and everyone's like, well, you'll have to be an artist model and you have to pose nude and sort of all the degrading ways that, that women artists were treated at that time. And she emerges somewhat victorious at the end although it's also kind of uh she marries the like handsome blonde frenchman but that's yeah. another story um <laughs> but i like i i like it because i think you know it, it really shows a woman who is willing to and trying to break barriers love that um but the other thing that goes on in that book that i've always found really interesting and it's why i've taught it is that there are a lot of stories going on in the early 20th century. So, I mean, really, maybe as early as the Civil War and then all the way through the 20s and 30s and beyond, but a lot of these stories of racial passing, right? Um, And it's very often about the secret being revealed, right? So if you read something like Nella Larson's Passing or the autobiography of an ex-colored man or sort of any of these um, stories, you're waiting essentially for the secret to be revealed as a reader, right? And then the world to come crashing down around them in some way. Or they start right away by saying, I have a race secret, you know, and and this is what I, my whole life is hiding this secret. Um, And Marion, and also me to a certain extent, has this race secret, right? So there's constantly people saying to her things like, oh, your foreign mother or the, you know, exotic norms yeah. or whatever. Or they're saying to her, um, in, in me, they say something like, oh, all that black hair you have, it's so beautiful. And she says, oh, it's because I'm Canadian. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so there's all these little hints throughout. There's something a little bit different. 
And people aren't, like, saying it. And people are saying it to her, right? Or Marion, who's this model, it's all about her being, right? So she's standing literally on a pedestal. And it's so much of the narrative is about her being examined and scrutinized and peered at and people trying to figure out what what is she. Mm -hmm. But actually, she never says. Interesting. Right? There's never, there's not, no, there's yeah. no race, or, or the race secret is an unsolved race secret. Or if we think there's going to be a, some kind of big revelation at the end, it never happens. Right? So I, I really like that, because I think yeah. it just changes the way we think about the racial passing novel. Amazing. Yeah. I will also have one yeah, more no, recommendation. Um, so I said Mary Chapman published Becoming Suicide and Far, which is a collection of pieces that were not in the first collection that came out years ago, Mrs. Spring Fragrance and Other Writings, um, which was very focused on stories about her Chinese, stories defending Chinese identity, we'll Mm -hmm. say. So not just about Chinese in America, but positive pieces in that sense, or negative against, you know, the the bad laws going on in Canada and the U.S. against the Chinese at that time. Um, and when they put that together, it was clearly very, it was like the emergence of Edith Eaton into academia, right? Um, and so they had, they were very selective. They wanted things that painted a picture of a defender of the Chinese. And what Mary Chapman does is she brings together actually a bunch of different stories. So we really start to see a range. Some of it's really not very good. Um, but sometimes, right, the juvenilia yeah, stuff, yeah. Is just, it's not good. It's dribble. But I kind of appreciate that because yeah. I feel like you start to see the emergence of this artist. Um, but the pieces I like in that collection are Chinese people, Chinese-based stories, but they're a little different and they're... It's a series that um, Edith ran, uh, these Wing Sing stories. So it's a story of a Chinese man. So she writes as if she were a man. Mm -hmm. So a Chinese man um, traveling through North America by train. And all the little things that happen along the way, all the people that he meets and the conversations that he has and the conversations that he overhears and the things that he sees all over North America. So it's travel literature from the perspective of a Chinese man written by a half Chinese woman, um, probably sitting in her house in Montreal. Yeah. Right? And and really colorful and really interesting and so much going on in these that I think almost no one has read. I have a uh, master's student doing her dissertation on them, which I'm really excited about. but I would say, read those. Like, what an interesting story of so many kinds of passing and crossing and mobility and, and all these different things coming together. So, pretty cool. And we are back. Um, I just want to say how nice it was to interview Karen because uh, we arranged it. Um, it was midday. I went over in the middle of my working day from the office to Karen's office. Karen was eating her lunch and we had this really intense chat about the Eatons and it was so funny and informative and just Karen knows every single thing. And in all of the research that I've done on the Eatons uh, since this conversation, Karen is just like cited everywhere and is referenced in every book and is writing every forward mm-hmm. and every article. And it's just, you know, um, it was just like such a pleasure to meet Karen in person and then go on to see like the impact that her research and work has like had on the legacy of the sisters. 
mm-hmm. and especially Winifred, who I also find very interesting. I mean, she's fascinating. Yeah. She's really fascinating. Because when I first, when I got in contact with Karen and I was like, hey, I want to talk to you about Edith Eaton. She's like, why do you want to talk to me about Edith? And then it was just like <laughs> Winifred from then on. So. <laughs> so I'm glad like we've got you repping Edith. I'm over here like loving Winnie. Team Winnie. Team Winnie. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, thank you, Karen. That was awesome. Um, it was such a great introduction to the Eaton sisters and to literature that deals with racial passing, which I want to cover a bit more on this show. This is a very um, sort of hot topic in literature in that sort of late Victorian era, um, early 20th century. Um, this is a topic we will definitely be revisiting in the future when we cover Nella Larson and her work Passing, which I know a lot of you guys have requested. I am desperate to do a read along of Passing or even of Quicksand, her other book. Um, We could pick between the two, Um, but I would like to time it with that upcoming movie that is coming out by Rebecca Hall and it's gonna be starring Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negga. And it went into pre-production last August. So I'm hoping- Soon. So I'm hoping sometime next year. That would be great. I would think maybe next summer. Yeah, it's on our schedule, but in like a very kind of loose, the schedule is in our head. Yeah. It's too soon for it to be on a physical schedule. Schedule. So in the meantime, uh, work by the Eaton Sisters is readily available online. And Diana Birchall's book, which was recommended by Karen, Diana Birchall, another name that has come up quite a few times not only is she Take Winifred's granddaughter yeah I know right she's the new Harriet Beecher Stowe um yeah Diana Birchall's book really interesting um I love I love an accessible biography which is like told yeah. in a really readable way and like I know like sometimes like the really dry ones are more like accurate or like stuff is like so, like you've got all of these sources and stuff but I just think like there's so much in Diana Birchall's book which is like family legend and stuff that mm-hmm. it's just like it's a really good read and you just get a sense of like yeah I think just who Diana Birchall thinks Winifred Ian is yeah that and how often do we get that perspective like yeah rarely you know just like someone's granddaughter I mean I think that's actually fascinating so I have put it on my very long to read list. <laughs> Someday. 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 We'll get to it. But um, yeah, I will post all of those links on our social media along with that um, feature from Library of America. And um, Hannah, what is social media? Why is it happening still? Um, I think social media is what the government is using to check our political alliances. Oh, dear. <laughs> Um, and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at bonnets at dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can find us and Mark Zuckerberg on Facebook by searching <laughs> bonnets at dawn. Sounds good. We will see you guys next week. And uh, yeah, yeah. Be careful online. <laughs> Bye. Bye.